Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Phase two of Hamilton's real-time control project is being launched. Auto insurance coverage is going to be changing. Hamilton St. Joe's training the surgeons of tomorrow. There's an alarming trend among seniors. We catch up with Ticats head coach Orlando Steinauer. And Dundas raises the Allen Cup again. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Five years ago... Well, nearly. July 2018, that's when we learned that 24 billion liters of sewage and uh, urban stormwater had spilled into Shadow Creek and Shadow Paradise March over a four-year period. Last November, city officials found uh, a 26-year-long sewage spill into Hamilton Harbor. That one poured in 337 million liters of sewage from about uh, 50 homes near uh, Burlington and Wentworth Streets earlier this year. Uh, News broke that 59 million liters of sewage had flowed into Lake Ontario from uh, nearly a dozen homes near Rutherford and uh, Myrtle Avenues. That one happening since 1996. Uh, All these incidents have been addressed, thankfully, and the city of Hamilton now launching the next phase of its real-time control project to help reduce the number of combined sewer overflows in Coots Paradise and Red Hill Creek. So what is going on? Mark Bainbridge is the Director of Water and Wastewater Planning and Capital with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mark, good morning. How are you? Good Monday morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Let's start with the absolute basic. What is a combined sewer overflow? Yeah, great question. Uh, certainly, if you've lived in Hamilton for any amount of time, you may have heard that term. And and certainly for other cities, uh, older cities across Ontario, like Ottawa, Toronto, and Windsor as examples. And combined sewer systems were commonly built. Uh, our system started in the mid-1800s, and uh, the design standards at that time uh, built a single pipe that uh, was intended to to do two functions, and that was to uh, both drain the city uh, from from stormwater, as well as take the uh, the sanitary waste from uh, from buildings and from residences, and convey them uh, through through the city and, and take them away from the center of the city. So that was the design standard of the day up until the 1950s and and early 60s uh, when it changed. And and now today we design s- systems that um, are separated. So we have storm sewers that are dedicated to uh, stormwater or precipitation, and we have sanitary sewers uh, in the newer parts of the city that are carrying just domestic waste from uh, from buildings. Uh, so, as you can imagine, the old system uh, was designed to take uh, what Mother Nature can throw at it, and uh, when when you consider how much rainfall can occur. Um, you never can expect uh, or, or predict how much that might be. So they, they, they design relief points in the system to, uh, to allow the overflow of precipitation uh, when storms get excessive. Uh, and that's a safety factor for the, for the system. So it prevents, uh, for, prevents the water from essentially flowing backwards into, uh, into businesses and residents. Uh, so trying to make sure that that doesn't happen, uh, the overflows occur. It's a great uh, explanation. Now let's get into the real-time control project in this latest phase. Tell us what, what's, what's new here. So real-time control is uh, sort of our modern standards for how we operate uh, our systems and we try to build intelligence into the into the sewer system and so in the 1800s and through into the early 1900s uh, the controls were simply 
um, fixed concrete block uh, walls or or um, structures that once the water gets to that level, it flows over the top of them. Um, so today we have better ways of controlling those flows and uh, using gates and modulators and, and having instrumentation within the system that allows us to know what the capacity or what the amount of flows are that are running through the system. And we can uh, use that information to uh, adjust the operation of our pumping systems. Uh, and in some cases, uh, the gates themselves are electronic, so they can be modulated uh, in order to uh, maximize the amount of flow that stays in the system and minimize the amount of flow that gets out of the system. And that's what real-time control is about. It's about uh, adjusting the operation of the system uh, on a real-time basis um, when, you're when you're looking at the information about what's flowing through the system, what rainfall is occurring on the ground, and how best to operate it at that given time. So is the goal of this latest phase to eliminate any sort of spills or leaks, or are we still going to have those? So spills are a little bit different. I just want to, you know, establish the the term spill means an unintended release of wastewater. And certainly the the ones that you introed the program with were things that we were discovering. We uh, they were uh, classified in spills and re reported as spills. Uh, but overflows themselves are designed, uh, and so they're intended to occur to protect the public. Uh, and this project that we're doing right now is a program that will modify key structures within the system and uh, build intelligence into those to reduce uh, and mitigate the overflows that occur at that site, uh, but it will not eliminate them. So we have some data that shows that uh, on average, we will uh, take overflows that were in the range of 10 to 12 and reduce them to uh, between zero and two. Uh, but again, when mother nature throws us uh, a storm that's bigger and badder than we've ever seen, uh, those points will remain in place uh, to overflow if necessary to protect the public. Uh, but we will have these new instrumentation uh, systems and new uh, uh, modulating weirs to uh, mitigate that as much as possible. In our uh, remaining uh, minute, how is this going to impact residents and businesses in Hamilton? So we've put out the media release last week, and uh, we do uh, appreciate the the, uh, the patience of the community. We will need to shut down some roads in the West End in particular at Glen Road and on Sterling Avenue. Um, that is probably the most uh, uh, that people will um, experience as an inconvenience is just those roadblocks for the period of time through the summer of 2023 when those roads will be fully closed and we'll have detours around those sites. Uh, in addition, Oakwood Place uh, will be a uh, little park there uh, will be used for uh, construction equipment. Um, and those are probably the most visible things uh, that uh, uh, members of the public will, will see in the community. And we, uh, we appreciate uh, all of the patients while we uh, do this work. Mark, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Best of luck with this. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Mark Bainbridge, he's the Director of Water and Wastewater Planning and Capital with the City of Hamilton. Uh, as he mentioned, Sterling Street is going to be closed between Forsyth and Witten. Glen Road going to be closed between Macklin and Tope. Uh, the uh, Sterling Street closure will wrap up uh, in around mid-August, and the Glen Road closure is going to be uh, lasting about five months. It should end at about uh, October of this year. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Major changes are coming to auto insurance in this province in 2024. The question is, are you going to opt in or will you opt out? So here's what's happening. Starting next year, vehicle owners will no longer be required to have direct compensation property damage, DCPD. Uh, That coverage on their vehicles, that will be an option. What does that mean and what are the ripple effects? Well, there's a great article online at driving.ca. Lorraine explains this new choice in Ontario car insurance will have terrible repercussions. Lorraine Sommerfeld is a columnist with driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Lorraine, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So you're calling this terrible. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's terrible. Nobody stopped for this. <laughs> and so, we have so what? The government who's, they're trying to, this is the way they say they're bringing down insurance prices. It's by giving you a choice of even if someone else crashes into you, you have no coverage. It's the most ridiculous choice I've ever seen. It's bad. Don't do, you, do it, people, and don't let your kids do it. Do you anticipate uh, anybody jumping at this? Um, it doesn't come in until January, but brokers and agents I work with um, and talk to all the time are going crazy. They're the ones who brought it to my attention because essentially most of us are familiar with removing collision, let's say, from a car. Like if you got an old beater and you're like, I don't care if it gets dented, I'm not going to get it fixed anyway. So you can save, you know, 100 bucks or 200 bucks a year on your coverage. Um, the problem with this, OCDP 49, it's called, sometimes I get those letters mixed up, it's early. Um <laughs> What you can opt to do is if if someone crashes into you, you're saying, okay, no, my car's not going to get fixed, even if it's not your fault. And if you've removed collision and stuff like that before and you cause a problem, you're saying, it's on me. I'll, I'll fix. The other person gets their car fixed, right? Now, you don't get your car fixed. Nothing. Even if it's their fault, nothing's getting fixed. It is a terrible, terrible decision. Unless you have a car that's only worth like 500 bucks and you don't care, that's, you know, something you might want to have a little talk with yourself. But the real issue here is for somebody like me, we ran the numbers, a broker and I put in all these numbers to try it. You know, how much could you possibly save? I might be able to save about $300, which is a really good chunk of my insurance premium. But for most people, like it's you know, no way is 300 bucks enough for me to remove that kind of coverage. Like, it would just be crazy. But we ran a hypothetical young man with a pickup truck, 21-year-old with a truck. He might be able to save $1,700 a year. This is the problem. You can see how attractive that would be to someone who is desperate, desperate to bring their rates down. And young male drivers, theoretically, actually, realistically, have the highest rates. So for them to be able to save this significant chunk of money, it's going to look attractive at first glance. And we really need them to not be looking at this. If you read the fine print, if you read that article that I wrote, I go through the whole wording and you can see why it's just disastrous. So please, parents, especially if your kids are looking at this, it's a short, fast way to save money in a moment, but it will have repercussions that will just haunt you. <laughs> you can find the article online at driving.ca. We've talked about collisions. What about when someone is injured in a crash? Is there any change there? No, injuries are always covered by insurance companies. That's part of our no-fault policy. And um, insurance companies, they pay out their own damages. It used to be that you'd have to sue each other to get you know who was at fault, all that stuff. They brought in no-fault which doesn't actually mean no one's at fault. It just means each insurance company takes care of their own 
uh, client, and then they sort it out amongst themselves later, and they do assign fault. So for people who go, oh, we have a no-fault thing. No, it doesn't mean you're not at fault. You'll, <laughs> if you did it, you're going to be found at fault, and your rates will go up. But no, or injuries will be taken care of. But one thing a lot of people don't know if you get in a car – if you're in a crash and you need physio or massage or anything, that comes off your work benefits first. It works through any coverage you have before anything kicks in from insurance. And for a lot of people who save those massages for, you know, five times a year or something, no, that'll max out all that stuff before insurance kicks in. Hmm. So our insurance is not terrific and the coverages have been weakened over the years. So I suggest everyone have a chat with a broker and just ask them for guidance on what limits should be and what you need to be best protected. Because a we lot of times for an extra 20 bucks a year, you can double coverages and make sure that you're well covered. And I, they don't pay me anything. I just can't stand seeing people getting ripped off. Yeah. We only got about 30 seconds. For those drivers who are considered high risk or they have a history of accidents or, or other traffic violations, would they be allowed to opt out, do you think? Well, they'll be allowed to unless someone else owns a car, like a leasing company or a finance company. So, yeah, it's legit. They can they can opt out of this and leave themselves wide open to having no coverage. You're, welcome to your bus pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds a lot safer to me. Yeah. Geez, Lorraine, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks, Rick. You can check out Lorraine's article online, driving.ca. Lorraine explains this new choice in Ontario car insurance will have terrible repercussions. And it sounds like she's exactly right. Yeesh, this is a, this is a scary proposition. I can understand the appetite to save money. Absolutely. But if something happens, might not be worth it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New research and education program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. And it's, it's helping medical trainees become the surgeons of tomorrow. We need more and more of these individuals. And this boot camp is being helped along with $1 million in donations. So this is this is pretty big stuff. Dr. Eddie Matsumoto is a urologist, a robotic surgeon, and director of the fellowship program in the Division of Urology at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Matsumoto, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me on your show. Tell us about this boot camp. This sounds really interesting. Yeah, very happy talking about our urology surgical boot camp. Uh, we're very pleased with the design and implementation of a urological surgical boot camp, which really first of its kind in Canada. Uh, this project is part of a larger program we've been developing at St. Joseph's Healthcare, looking at accelerating, enhancing the training of residents. So the boot camp is an intense two-day program that is mandatory for all first-year residents coming in into our program. It's very similar to a military boot camp for no, new recruits. The goal is to teach specific skills to a group of learners in a very short period of time. You know, what's to say you must learn to crawl before you can walk? So what happens in these two days? This sounds really intense. Yeah, it's very intense. Uh, it consists of didactic teaching as well as hands-on practice on specifically and specially designed surgical models, which substitute for a patient. And the goal is to have the residents be very comfortable and confident to perform these uh, basic surgical skills, such as asserting catheters, suturing, removing drains, and many other day-to-day -day surgical activities that, as a practicing surgeon, become so automated. But for the novice training, this could be quite daunting. They also learn how to manage very sick patients whom they may encounter in the first few weeks of their training. They learn about the resources that are available within the hospital and also where to uh, seek help. 
So give us an example of what each day would look like for one of these trainees. What are they, what are they learning? What are they doing? So once again, it's very intense. And you're looking at eight-hour days where they're coming in. And there's a component of a didactic portion where they learn kind of the knowledge uh, basis for the skills. Uh, so, for instance, uh, they may see a patient that comes into the ER that can't void. They learn, you know, why this patient can't void, you know, what are the troubleshooting measures, what are the important diagnostic tools to use, and then more importantly, what to do next. So you can imagine as a medical student who has never seen a patient or really laid hands on a patient, uh, you know, uh, as a responsible physician, this is really ideal to getting them up to speed. And of course, more importantly, from a patient perspective, it's about patient safety and of course, having the best care. And once again, this is all being done in Hamilton and St. Joseph's Hospital. We're talking about a urological surgical boot camp that is run by Dr. Eddie Matsumoto at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How many trainees are involved and, and what kind of success have you seen? Well, the, to date, uh, we've trained over uh, 30 residents. Uh, this program actually, we're quite proud to say, has actually gone uh, national as well, too. So once again, this is a program that was uh, devised uh, at St. Joseph's Hospital, and uh, we expanded it to our partners at Western and now Toronto. And uh, pretty much across Canada, we'll have residents coming in uh, to participate in this uh, boot camp. Uh, one of the amazing finds that we recently published is that we could take first-year residents through this boot camp and make them as competent as a second-year resident when it comes to achieving these data today's skills. Uh, so the results are, are quite impressive. Uh, I understand that trainees operate on uh, unique or, or I guess specific mannequins. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So we have different uh, components of, of the body. So for instance, obviously as a urologist, we focus on the uh, the pelvic area. So we will have some models that, you know, replicating a bladder, uh, you know, the prostate and the urethra. So the residents can, you know, practice placing tubes in there, uh, get a familiarity with the anatomy. And once again, they can actually practice, they can actually make mistakes and learn from their mistakes without any concerns of harm to the patient and also no concerns of time constraints. This is almost like the real-life game of operation. It's exactly what it is. It's a glorified <laughs> version of game of operation. But the technology is expanding. You know, this is just a real small component of some of the surgical education research that we're doing at St. Joe's. You know, obviously, you heard about a robotic surgical program. So we're looking at virtual reality training. And the, the neat, neat thing we're looking at now is AI in assessing surgical performance. Very exciting stuff that's coming down the road. Yeah, so how does that play a part in the the surgeons of tomorrow, virtual reality and AI? How are we going to apply these in the operating room? You mean, I always look at it this, you know, think of this as top gun school for surgeons, right? You know, we get to a certain point, we want to take the best of the best residents and really get them up to speed and utilizing the technologies. And one of the challenges we have, we have very limited resources. As you can imagine, you know, our OR wait times are behind, you know, you know, as a surgeon, as a, as a, as a, as a teacher, I want to divvy up time between teaching the residents. Okay. But at the same time, I got to make sure the case gets done in a timely fashion. So by preparing the residents for their operating experience, whether it's using a robotic, laparoscopic, or endoscopic procedures, we really enhance and really make that time efficient in the OR when it comes to learning. And once again, it becomes a safety factor as well for the patient. What is the surgical backlog like here in Hamilton? Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're faced with the same challenges across Canada. COVID certainly did not help us. Um, so, you know, we're doing our best. Uh, the administration uh, has been excellent in supporting us. Uh, but, you know, we, we still request the patience of our patients um, and uh, we're triaging and doing our best. Great to hear. And it's great to hear that this boot camp is making a huge impact. Dr. Matsumoto, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Best of luck with this going forward. 
Thank you very much, Rick. Really appreciate it. That is Dr. Eddie Matsumoto, a urologist, robotic surgeon, and director of the fellowship program in the Division of Urology at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. This urological surgical boot camp, that, it sounds intense. A couple of days, eight hours each. When he mentioned, uh, <laughs> when he mentioned top, is the top gun of urology boot camps, I, all I thought was uh, there's got to be a maverick and got to be an Iceman within the training regimen, I am sure. And it's already gone national, which is amazing to see. Things that start here in Hamilton are making uh, some waves across the country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Sexually transmitted infection, STIs. April is STI Awareness Month. And uh, as I've been saying earlier on in the show, this isn't just a talk, the talk, that we have to have with teens these days. We got to do it with... In some cases, our parents. In some cases, our grandparents. I know it can be an awkward conversation, but it's it's one we have to have because in the last 10 years, STI rates for seniors have skyrocketed. Listen to these stats. For those of you over the age of 65, 267% increase in cases of chlamydia, 338% rise in gonorrhea, and 340% spike for syphilis. These are all in people over the age of 65. What's going on and what should we be doing about this? Jane Johansson is the daughter of globally recognized sex expert and beloved Canadian TV personality Sue Johansson. And Jane joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jane, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you. I'm really well. These statistics are really concerning. Well, it's it's so alarming. I think even to me, and I think if, uh, you know, when I share these stories with my mother, she's, she's absolutely gobsmacked and, um, and so glad that uh, these two women are addressing it in this way with this, um, uh, you know, new product. Well, it's not a new product, but um, a configuration of GEMS condoms. Uh, I want to get to that product in a second, but why mm-hmm. are we seeing the increase in, in the last 10 years? What is going on? Well, I think, uh, you know, people have always been, you know, incredibly sexually active in their own way. And I think now that they've got more free time, whether it was COVID or whether they've moved into a retirement home and they're able to um, uh, to live in closer quarters and to commune a little more closely. And they've got a lot of time on their hands. So uh, why not? Why not? And I say yes to that. Um, but I think it, it is alarming with these statistics. And so we need to address um, that to keep our seniors, our grandparents, our parents safe. Absolutely. So what what discussion should we be having with these individuals? And, and they should be discussing this amongst themselves, too. Absolutely. I think we need to, I think we just need to uh, break the ice. And um, in any way, we can break the ice with humor, talking about it personally ourselves, uh, just starting the conversation. Uh, my mom was always a big believer that if you use humor initially, then that gets the ball rolling. So uh, just make it light. It's, you know, it's a serious issue, but let's keep it light, uh, using humor, positive reinforcement, and then, uh, you know, using suggestions and icebreakers that allow um, you to, to kind of get into that topic. And then, um, and then they'll be more comfortable talking about it the more you talk about it. Jane Johansson is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jane is the daughter of sex expert extraordinaire Sue Johansson and is uh, sharing her knowledge on this hot topic uh, during sexual 
sexual transmitted infectious uh, infection awareness month which is uh, the month of april uh, l- let's talk about the gems condoms initiative they've launched a let's just call it an an effing old campaign uh, t- <laughs> tell us about tell us about that well um these are two canadian women who are um they're just you know ex- Extraordinary Movers and Shakers. They started this in uh, 2021, and they wanted to normalize sex and condom use. So they've created this body-safe condom that is, you know, non-toxic, it's thin, it's uh, lubricated, gluten-free, cruelty-free. So they want to have this um, new product on the market, um, and it just... It, it's just to encourage the use of these and get away from the old uh, original packaging. So the packaging is to uh, get away from kind of a ma- masculine-based packaging. And so they're much more colorful and bright and um, user-friendly. You also mentioned they're gluten-free. Do other condoms have gluten in it? Or is that just something we should just put on the table to say, hey, it doesn't have any gluten? I think gluten is in everything, isn't it? It's probably in this pen that might be okay for me. I'm touching with my hand. Um, yeah, who knows? I have no idea. I'm not the, the maker of something like this, but I do know that they're trying to make it as user-friendly as possible and um, and good for them for doing this because they're realizing that people will use them if they uh, are more, if they're easier to use, if they're more comfortable to use and people aren't adverse, you know, they, they, they're not allergic to latex or things like that. So, um, also, it's the uh, candies that come uh, that you can also purchase with the uh, condoms, which allow um, uh, conversation starters, icebreakers. Um, you share a candy with your grandparent, and um, and they come in all different flavors, and they can break the ice. That's a great idea. Uh, at the end of the day, safer sex should be for all ages. It's not just for younger folk, and this is really the message we're trying to get out there. Exactly. That's the thing, is that we, we all need to to take care of ourselves and in this day and age I think people are more comfortable talking about sex and I think the younger generation is is probably more comfortable talking about sex now than they ever were and let's share that let's let's share the um, the the energy of the youth and the knowledge of their knowledge and encourage them to share that um, you know with their grandparents to keep them safe because you know retirement homes where the where the seniors may be they've got their hands full dealing with too many other medical issues to have to try to address, um, you know, all these sexually transmitted diseases on top of that. In her final 30 seconds together, how is your mom doing? Oh, she's awesome. I'm so, uh, that was very nice of you to ask that. She is uh, really enjoying her retirement years. But I tell you, if um, if she had her way, um, she would be endorsing this uh, 100%. So I know that she would encourage me to, to be doing this in her stead at this moment in time. But thank you for asking. She is, um, she's doing well at 92 years of age. That is great to hear. And it's awesome that you're carrying the torch as well. Jane, thanks for the time today. You're more than welcome. Take care. Jane Johansson is uh, the daughter of sex expert uh, extraordinaire Sue Johansson, who, as you've heard at 92, still going strong. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In just over a month from now, believe it or not, the Hamilton Ticats will be playing their first preseason game when they host the Toronto Argonauts at Tim Hortons Field on May the 27th, so a month and a couple of days. Uh, Orlando Steinauer is the head coach and president of football operations with the Ticats and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Coach O, good morning. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm good. Uh, considering the talent that you have accrued this offseason, let me just bring out and remind our listeners of some of the names who are now Ticats. Bo Levi Mitchell, Joel Figueroa, Kwaku Botang, Chris Edwards, Jameer Thurman, James Butler, Duke Williams. Was this offseason potentially the most impactful in your coaching tenure here in Hamilton? Uh, that that's yet to be seen. I think that, uh, we were extremely active, but I think the one thing to remember is that we let, uh, or players chose to, however you want to phrase it. There's some really great ball players that aren't going to be with us. Right. So it's not like, um, we had terrible people in here before we had great people, high character, and obviously they could play football, um, really well. So, um, I think, in years past, what I'm saying here is that we were able to retain a lot of our talent, and so we weren't as active. And this time, you know, sometimes it's people's place to make a decision to go elsewhere or things like that. And sometimes uh, it just doesn't fit. And so um, we'll see how we'll see how it plays out, Rick. One of those great players and great people uh, is Dane Evans. Uh, the trade with BC is that? Do you consider that a win-win? Yeah, that's all in the past. We're not like I'm we're we're all the focus right now is on the players that are going to be Hamilton Tiger Cats. And that's we're moving forward in 2023. Uh, there's going to be some players who will be Hamilton Tiger Cats after the Canadian Football League draft that is coming up. Uh, how do you describe this year's class of draftees? Is it a deep draft, talented draft? What, what do you what, what words come to mind for you? Well, I, I think that every draft is unique in its own sense. Some drafts are. You know, at the end of the day, it's a draft. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is it's an in, in, inexact science. Uh, most everybody is going to get drafted. And as you know, we've got draft choices on our football team that were drafted really late. And sometime when we have some people that were drafted early that haven't played a lot. So when you say, is it a deep draft or not? I always think there's talent available. It's is the moment too big for them. Are they ready to play? And that sort of thing. So I'd say that there's a lot of talent in this draft, and I wouldn't know where to rank it uh, with other other years. So many variables with the CFL draft, too, and it's much different than, let's just say, the NFL draft, you know, comparing football to football, because in some cases, players may never play in the CFL. They might make it to the NFL. They might do other things or, you know, be forced to change positions from offense to defense. What is your draft philosophy at the end of the day? Yeah, it's 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 longer. It's a longer show than that. And it, it's all it's always a question on best player available versus need based and, and how many picks you have and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's some players that we may never see and you kind of have to decide if you're going to take a draft pick, uh, be it in the later rounds and see if that's something that, that, that interests you. Or do you want to. Uh, work for your football team, you know, and, and hope that it works out this year. There's also a strategy in knowing that certain players are able to go back to school. So uh, the perspective is always year to year. It's not an, an overall, we are this, we are always going to take this because sometimes your your needs changed. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, for example, let's say that there's a lot of uh, strong O-line candidates, well, they may not be there available in the second round, so then your strategy would change and your perspective would change that year from another year. We've got about 90 seconds with Orlando Steinauer, head coach and president of football operations with the Hamilton Ticats. Later on this summer, Darren Flutie is going to be inducted into the Wall of Honor at Tim Hortons Field. Your thoughts on, on Darren and the career that he had? Excited.
you don't play for these type of accolades. Darren would be one of those one of those people that wouldn't you know he he didn't play to get recognized. He was the the ultimate team player. He was a high achieving guy. I, I'm just excited that he's going to have to be uncomfortable and get recognized and waved to everybody. He is more. <laughs> More than deserving, and I can't wait for the welcome that Hamilton has for him. I'm excited for Darren and his family. That's going to be a lot of fun for sure. Coach O, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning, and uh, we'll talk to you a little closer to training camp. Sounds awesome. Have a great day. You too. Orlando Stein, our head coach, president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Yeah, that uh, August 17th game against the Elks should be exciting on the field. And, of course, when Darren Floaty is inducted into the Wall of Honor. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Dundas Real McCoys are champions again. They raised the Allen Cup on Saturday for the second time in team history after they pulled off a dramatic comeback win in the title game. Don Robertson is the owner of the Dundas Real McCoys and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Don, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Not too good. Yeah, I can imagine. Congratulations. Has the party stopped yet? Uh, I think think the boys have shut it down now. (laughs) I I don't partake like I used to be able to. I'm getting wore out and like so many of our uh, wonderful volunteers and executive. It's it's a long week to put on <clears throat> eight games and put the show on and do it effectively and seamlessly. And I'll tell you, we have the best group of executive uh, on the planet. And uh, it seems like we have the best hockey team in the Commonwealth right now. So that's pretty good for uh, uh, a small town and uh, of course, part of Hamilton, but it was, it's ended up very well. Interesting how we got there, but it happened. Yeah, let's let's go to how you got there in the first place because it wasn't the smoothest road to the championship game. It wasn't, and oddly enough, generally when you're playing at home, you have tremendous player availability, and that wasn't the case. So we didn't uh, we didn't have a full lineup once um, for a litany of reasons, some of which are my responsibility. Um, but we had the right group, and we had a group that cared. And we were only down two nothing going into the third period, and you know we had a little chat with the guys that you know these opportunities to be uh, Allen Cup and national champions don't come along very often, and some of them wouldn't have this opportunity ever again, and may have never had it before. So if you play your cards right and work hard enough in the third period, we we were very confident that if we could get one, we could get uh, we could get a bunch. I don't know if I. Ever thought we'd get five in the last 10 minutes of the game, but <laughs> it happened. And because we have more of a veteran club and, and Clarenville are a younger group, they work hard. And uh, if we could get them on their heels and get them scared a little bit, we did. And we scored three goals in short order and got five goals in the last 10 minutes. And I think it rattled them. I can't say it didn't surprise me a little bit that we got five, but anyway, we got enough to win and it happened. Yeah, Clarenville was undefeated going into the championship game at 3-0. and They uh, had you down 2 nothing going into the third period. Obviously, the speech worked because, yeah, five goals in the third, including a couple of quickies back-to-back, uh, which always helps as well. How would you compare Saturday's championship victory to what you guys pulled off in 2014 as hosts of the Allen Cup? Well, I, I characterize it that, that we had a different kind of a hockey team. In 2014, we had every player available every game. We knew for almost two years that we were going to host the Allen Cup. 
So we were building it as if we were going to host it in, in Great My Arena, where the ice surface is smaller than uh, the regulation NHL size arena. So we took advantage of that. And this year, because we weren't we weren't awarded the event until February, we didn't have the luxury of being able to go out and talk to guys and say, "Look, at here's the deal. We're guaranteed a spot in this thing." So we we just took our our normal hockey team into it. Now we do have a lot of veteran leadership. Uh, it, it was nice that Mike Mole was the MVP um, of 14 and then 23 because anybody that watches hockey knows you can't win anything without outstanding goaltending. And he only stopped about 16,000 shots in the event. And, <laughs> you know, Simon Mangos, our captain, was there. And, and you add in Chris Campoli and, and Phil Brewer as guys that have been around with us for a long time. So we had a different kind of a team, Rick. Uh, the 2014 was built to to uh, win the event. Uh, 2023 was built to be able to compete in the event. But the most important thing to our group was that we got the Allen Cup back off the mat and hadn't been played for since 2019. Because it is the oldest hockey championship in the Commonwealth, it's important. So we, we resurrected that and the event and the Allen Cup was more... It was more important that we put on a really good show, which our executive did, and uh, winning is just an absolute bonus. So we had a great group of guys at the end, the guys that all wanted to play and all wanted to win, really. I mean, the, once we got one goal, I mean, the roof almost blew off a great matter when we got one, <laughs> and they hadn't even all sat down again, and we had another one. And uh, they hadn't had a chance to pick up the rally towels, and we had a third one. So the building was crazy, you know. Whenever you get a full building, I mean, when you're standing room only, it works out really well. And uh, so the crowd was wonderful and the community was wonderful. And it, uh, I guess we're very pleased. It was a uh, phenomenal tournament, top to bottom, an amazing championship victory by the Dundas Real McCoys. Don, congratulations on another title. And uh, who knows, uh, back on top of the Hockey Summit sometime soon, I'm sure. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for caring. Don Robertson is the owner of the Dundas Real McCoys Allen Cup champions for the second time in team history. Very, very cool. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.